for thank you so much for for agreeing to do this. Um, maybe I'll give a little bit of an intro for those listening. Uh, I'm talking with Eric Lennertson. Is that how you pronounce your last ah, name? Ah, you got it on the first try. <laughs> um, Eric is an oscilloscope artist, uh, composer, and an improviser who, just like me, lives in Los Angeles. And uh, I saw his work a couple, couple, three weeks ago at uh, a little gallery in Chinatown called Automata Arts. Um, I was there with my partner who had somehow found the event online and suggested that we check it out. And I'm really glad that we did. Uh, it was this kind of, it was a hypnotic, it was a transfixing, it was a kind of super unexpected uh, situation, something I, I, I've never, I've never been to an oscilloscope performance before. Of course, I knew what they were just from like popular media, seeing the images around. Um, and then there's that, that famous production company by the, uh, the old Beastie Boy oscilloscope productions. I don't know if you know about them, but working in film, you run into them once in a while. Um, but there was something kind of raw and pure uh, about the experience of, of sound kind of like translated directly into this visual phenomenon and, and being, being invited to like soak in that for such a long time is something that I, I really appreciated. And, you know, you, you, you started it by turning all the lights off. So you're literally in kind of a pitch black room, except for the glow of these oscilloscopes and everybody's positioned around their own little screen or uh, oscilloscope. And, uh, yeah, Eric kind of played, uh, music. Did a did a music or noise performance for I don't know a good forty five minutes or so maybe up to yeah. an hour yeah about forty five minutes so that was the scene and then you know during this experience I was having all of these thoughts and questions and realizing oh I have this little platform maybe this would be a great opportunity to uh, to ask you these questions rather than kind of approaching you after the performance itself. Um, so yeah, I guess can you, Eric? Can you just talk a little as a, as an introduction? Can you talk a little bit about just your own work and and specifically what led you to oscilloscopes as a medium? What was your like very first encounter with these things in your life? Yeah, so my very first encounter was many others' very first encounter. Uh, this guy going by the name of Geraldine Fenderson uh, released an album just simply titled Oscilloscope Music. Uh, and it was it's well, what's the stuff that I wanted to do? So, you know, there's this oscilloscope, it's generating music, and there's these visuals that match it. And the stuff I do is a lot more like abstract. So it's not necessarily like I'm seeing a dog on the screen. It's you know some crazy pattern of lines and circles, or something like this. Um, but his was more direct. So like here's a track called Asteroids, and there's literally a spaceship shooting down asteroids, and it's more of like this sort of techno-y pop kind of feel. Um, so I saw that back in 2017, late 2016, something like this. I don't know the exact date. Um, and then I knew nothing about computers or electronics or how to make computer music. I was a going to school to be like a, a percussionist, like someone in the back of the orchestra It's going to play Vivaldi or Strauss or, you know, Stravinsky or something. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I still went to school for that, but in the background I was learning how to code and, you know, 
there's this program called Pure Data that I use. It's sort of code, sort of not, and hooking things up to computers. You know, what is sample rate and all that stuff. Uh, so it took me took me a little while. Uh, I ended up finally getting all those random pieces of like STEM knowledge uh, around like 2020, and I released an album over the pandemic uh, called 10 Million Hertz. But then I decided everyone should listen to every track in order, so it's actually just gonna be a giant blob of music. And so 10 Million Hertz ended up being like a 20 minute solo experience. Uh, and then from there, I just sort of slowly been getting better at coding and making interesting visuals and learning more about the artistic applications of this stuff. What was the what was the album called again that you mentioned? Oscilloscope Music. By by what was the person's name? Jero Beam Fenderson. And was that you said you encountered it around 2017? Is that when it came out? Yeah, uh, something like that. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure of the exact date, but like early 2017, late 2016, around that time. Is when was it this a was it a visual album? Yeah, yeah, it's just a series of YouTube videos. Okay. Um, he has some earlier stuff before the album. Like, I think there's a piece from 2013 called Nuclear Black Hole Noise or something like this. And it's just him experimenting with, uh, he has like a 128 sine wave uh, like AM synthesizer going. And then the piece is him just like exploring, you know, this crazy synth he made. Uh, and it, obviously generates visuals that go along with it. Um, in your, as, as you, as you kind of like learned this instrument and, and got more comfortable with it, did you also get into the history of it? Like, could you talk a little bit about, I guess, like what, what were they, what were oscilloscopes first used for? And also maybe like, how do they work? Like what, what's going yeah. on? So oscilloscopes are super old. Uh, I think the first one is actually called an oscillograph, and it's it's a piece of test equipment. So scientists want to know, you know, how some circuit is working, and you know, circuits are operating on like really tiny scales. You can't see what's going on, and things are happening, you know, at the scale of like nanoseconds and faster. And say you have some circuit, and you want to know what's happening, so you stick some probes on it, and the probes hook into the oscilloscope and they measure voltage, how voltage changes over time. And you plug those into the scope, you turn some knobs so that you can see what's happening on whatever time scale, say 500 nanoseconds or something, and it'll show you what the voltage is doing. Um, when people talk about ones and zeros, <laughs> ones and zeros is high voltage or low voltage. Uh, so say you've got some sequence of bits or something. You would see if you wanted a one zero one zero, you want to see that the voltage is going up and then down and then up and down. Um, there's other ways to use it, but I've never used it as a test <laughs> instrument. I've only ever used it to make visuals. So, so these were originally specifically for computer engineers. Yes. I feel like I have this image of like them being in hospitals, but am I confusing <laughs> that with something else? Uh cardiograms. Yeah, what well, the the thing that goes like doop doop. Yeah, like the yeah. Heartbeat. Yeah. So this is also partly the history of uh, just displays for electronics. Like it's it's a CRT in there. So like your old TVs, it's the same technology. Um, the reason the TV has you know 
full range of colors because it has three different kinds of phosphor on it. So every, I'm pretty sure everyone knows about the red, blue, green thing for computers. You have like yeah. three little diodes to three different kinds of phosphors on the back plate of the, of the screen. For the scope, it's just the green. And I'm sure for the cardiograms in the old hospital equipment, it's probably just some cheap phosphor they found. So just a blue or a green of some kind. Hmm. That's this. This all just strikes me as as kind of a leap from from uh, wanting to do percussion in uh, in like art art music or classical music and in into this kind of like deeply technical engineering stuff. Was that natural for you? Like, have you had you always had kind of a double interest, or did it did it feel like a leap at all for you? Uh, I mean, so I've always been that kid that's like sort of good at math. Like, I didn't do well in math, but I was also like, I, good enough that I could just like sit there in class and coast <laughs> and pass the class. Okay. Um, that was definitely not me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, originally before I went to college, I was like thinking about, should I pursue music? Should I do something else? And I almost went to school for a physics degree. Uh, and then I said, no, I'm going to be a musician. Um, yeah, so it's sort of sitting there in the background, but I didn't, you know, end up actually going to school for any of these things. And then, you know, sort of uh, found a way to merge these two things unexpectedly. Um, I don't think if, if, if oscilloscope music didn't exist, I don't think I would have discovered it on my own. Um, mm -hmm. Probably would have ended up staying in the Western art music world. Okay. Um, so during your performance, one thing, one thing that I that I wasn't sure of that I was really curious about was uh, never having played with an oscilloscope myself. What was the amount of control that you, as an artist, could exert in in real time over those visuals? Like, will a certain sound always inevitably produce a certain image in the oscilloscope, or are there parameters you're controlling beyond just the sound input to make it look like? skinny or bend around a certain axis or look more 3d or more linear or whatever at a certain moment yeah so it's a hundred percent replicable uh there was wow. two showings that night and the first one was the exact same performance uh actually one of the people that helped me run the show talked to me about that afterwards they were like i saw the crazy thing and i saw the exact same crazy thing again <laughs> i was like yeah yeah so for that was a composition. So for that performance, I literally just hit play on a sound file and it does exactly what I tell it to. So in other words, there aren't, there are not parameters independent of the sound that can adjust the visuals in the oscilloscope. It's just, it's just the sound input. The mostly true. There's other, you, you can do other things. Um, some scopes have a brightness modulation input. So okay. you could control how bright it is separate from the sounds. Uh, I don't use that, mainly because each it, it's a technical reason. The friend calls it long, boring reason. But for long, boring reason, please <laughs> we we could talk about it if you want. But basically, uh, I don't use it for various reasons. I. I... Could, would you mind going into the long, boring reason? Yes. So basically, it's an audio routing problem. So each scope needs two DC coupled inputs. And 
for the brightness modulation, I need a third DC couple input. So at the show, we had four scopes, I believe. So that's already eight, eight outs I need. So I'm taking a stereo channel and duplicating it four times. Okay. Then I would, if I wanted each one to have brightness modulation, now I need 12 outputs. I see. Okay. And finding DC coupled anything is a real pain in the butt. Uh, yeah. So we had to, we ended up renting an audio interface just for that performance. I think what was something that was really crazy to me watching it was like these moments where the the images on the oscilloscopes would like morph in this way that I don't know how to describe it. It looked, I mean, I guess this is just describing why you're an oscilloscope artist and not just an oscilloscope user is that you yeah. were doing, you were doing something with those visuals that made it look almost like balletic or performative where it was like, it, it would like, I don't know, it was like some cloud of green dots would like freeze and then like spin around an axis or something like that. And it looked to me in those moments, like it can't just be, the audio that's making it do that. How would you do that? It, but but you're saying it is. It is just the sound itself is really all that's being translated onto those screens. Yeah, so it's a it's a lot of math. Is the answer? Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. So all the math that you would use for like a 3D graphics program, it's all the it's exactly the same. So if you like opening, if you use like some 3D modeling software, like the two I know are Maya and Blender. Uh, the math that's used for that, it's all exactly the same. You go to some website and you see some fat, fancy graphics, all, all the same math. It all goes back to the same thing. Right. The only trick with the oscilloscope is translating that into, you know, a green dot that moves around the screen really fast. So there's a little bit of trickery that happens there, but like the core idea of how am I going to draw this cloud of green dots that then morphs into a circle that rotates around an axis. It's it's all that same sort of uh, core math that you have to know. Okay, I think in I think in some way I was imagining that you were purely working with sound and and ah. the visuals were secondary. So so maybe I'm learning something a little bit about your process here. Can you talk a little bit about what the composition process is like for you? Yeah. So yes, the the way you're thinking is the way I first thought too. Was I'm going to create some sounds and they'll create some visuals that are nice. But then you quickly learn that actually the opposite workflow is much better. Here's a visual I want, and let's figure out how to make it, and then maybe it'll sound interesting. Mm. So from that perspective, the math thing makes a whole lot more sense. I want to draw a triangle on the screen. What is the math for a triangle? Cool. All right, now let's translate it into you know, sound. So now I'm. this is the coding bit, program your synthesizer to do this weird specific thing. And that that's what the composition process is like. So I spent a long time coding up a lot of very basic stuff. Here's a thing that rotates sound waves. <laughs> here's a thing that draws a cube. Here's you know all sorts of things like this. And then the composition process now is, here's all these tools I've made. Here's some visual I want. And now I can combine them and play with them and find interesting things. Do the visuals always? proceed the the sound for you or is it do you sometimes work just with audio and then see what happens to the visuals uh it's like 95 percent visual first mm -hmm. um when i'm composing what often happens is i'll just like sit in this sound for a really long time so once i've got the visual sort of happening 
then I'll start playing with it and seeing, you know, what, what are my possibilities as far as sound goes. So for every, you know, that's a 45 minute piece for every, for every, I don't know, like 30 second chunk, there's like an hour and a half of just being like fiddling with knobs and sliders and seeing what the possibilities are. Yeah. Um, so, so you're basically just, you're basically hitting play and monitoring to make sure that the machines are all talking to each other yeah. during this performance. What is that? like for you is it does it get boring or like what is the experience of watching this this play out in front of an audience are you watching people's faces or like what's in your mind uh i was mostly bored <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's it's it seems like it would be a really complicated setup but it really is just i hit play on the computer computer goes out to audio interface audio interface then just cables out to scopes and speakers mm -hmm. um and that's about as simple a setup as you can have really um and since i'm not doing anything live um i've done live stuff before and it's a lot more nerve-wracking <laughs> yeah because uh, my programs are pretty janky and like to crash mm. uh, which is not so great live but um for this you know it's it's pretty simple and so i just sort of sit there and know that it's going to work i think one particular sensation that i was enjoying during the performance um was this idea of of us humans being able to see how this machine hears music or seeing how it hears sound i don't know if that's how you'd put it but but to me that was a little bit of the experience and it feels like as we're increasingly faced with like neural nets and machine learning that that take in tons of input from from human creators and then kind of like delight or surprise or scare us with how those machines interpret our outputs or our detritus can you talk a bit about playing around with this with this uncanny space of machine like machine translation or machine subjectivity but choosing to do it in a much more analog way yeah so i'm so glad you asked this question because the one of the like initial like aesthetic hurdles that i was battling with when i was first getting into this is like why why use the oscilloscope like well, what's the point? Like, uh, like Adobe After Effects and like computer graphics are so advanced now that like I could create something just as stunning using something digital, and it would and it would work exactly the same. I'd have some sound file, and I'd tell the computer based on this sound file, you know, draw these images. So like, why why even use the scope? And you're sort of hitting on it, but indirectly. But I eventually like reached this conclusion where I was like, treat the scope as an instrument. So like, just like there's, there's music for violin and it's, it only really works if it's on the violin. Like, um, or a better example is like the Bach cello suites. People will take the Bach cello suites and they'll play them on all sorts of other instruments, but they, they're really, and they sound fine, but like, it's really supposed to be on cello, right? And that's sort of my goal with the scope. You could go digital and, you know, it would work, but it's really for the scope, the scope as an instrument. Like, 
Um, I think about just like if the scope could make music on its own, what music would it be making? It wouldn't be making Vivaldi. It would be making, I don't know, maybe like art is the things that we experience in life. So lots of people are making art with AI because AI is everywhere and it sort of controls our lives in mysterious and unforeseen ways. It, maybe the scope would be more of this noisy thing. It's so used to just seeing, testing things all the time that maybe it was trying to unpack its own reality. So that's sort of the approach I'm taking. It mm. has to be on the scope. It's for the scope. Only really makes sense on, on the scope. And sometimes I succeed and sometimes I'm not so sure, but that, that's, the, that's my aesthetic goal with this. Is there like a community of other uh, oscilloscope artists out there that, that you've been encountering or are you carving more of a niche for yourself, would you say? Uh, yeah, there's a small group of us. It's pretty uh, pretty separated like globally. Like sure. there's me and a couple other people in the US. Then um, there's a handful of people in Europe. Uh, and it's what's really interesting and I'm kind of glad for this, is that each of us is, like, extremely unique. So it's me and a couple other people, like, are, like, music-focused. Like, when I'm making it, it's, like, a music visual experience. You're going to go see, and it's, like, I'm getting blasted with noise, and here's these cool visuals. Other people, it's more like a, like an installation, like an art installation. Here's this thing that's being drawn on a scope. And actually, I don't care about the sound. So some people... <laughs> will actually just mute the sound, and it's more about the visual. Um, yeah, so there's just like this whole range of stuff. Like mine's a lot more abstract, generally. Some people, like Garabim, is going to be more like techno-pop. Here's like a very objective visual. I'm watching a dog walk across the screen sort of thing. I, I want to go back to your to your answer from, from a minute ago, just because as I've had time to kind of like just on it for a second. Um, you talk about how you know you use the Bach cello suites as an example of of music that really only that that is really only kind of perfect or what it's meant to be when it's played on a certain instrument. So, I mean, could you try to put your finger on what it is in the oscilloscope that is kind of special that would be separate from any uh, digital simulation of it? Yeah. So there's a handful of things, but. One of the, I'd say number one is like this glow of the phosphor. Mm. It feels really alive. Um, and when the, whenever like the CRTs have an electron gun <laughs> and it's shooting a beam of electrons at the scope and that activates the phosphor and so you'll see a little dot wherever it hits. Yeah. But there's, there's afterglow too. So it's not just a strictly, it's on, it's off. It's on and then it decays for a little bit which again, you can replicate in After Effects or whatever, but like that's so much more work. And the oscilloscope just does this for you. You don't have to do any, like you don't have to do anything else. It just does it. And so that's part of it is me playing with that. It's that's like the, some inherent aspect. Um, the other thing is that, so the sounds are digital and to get them onto the scope, it has to be analog. So that's what the audio interface is, is converting from my digital sounds to an analog signal that the scope can understand. And in that process, you know, there's only so much fidelity you can have. 
So if you look carefully, and it's pretty easy to see if you know what you're looking for, but if you're just seeing the scope for the first time, you probably don't even notice. But there's all sorts of weird fragments and errors on the image that digitally will never exist. <laughs> but on the scope, because of this translation from digital to analog, they, they will always be there. And that's also something that I value. It's sort of just a, a nod towards, hey, uh, there's no perfect computer system. And in fact, this translation is causing errors to be in there. Man, I've been... Uh... I've been getting really into in 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 a way that I haven't really asked myself why or tried to put my finger on, but I've been getting really into old. Um, I guess it would be CRT or vacuum tube or whatever video cameras, like early analog video cameras from the uh, you know, let's let's say throughout the eighties, yeah, late seventies through late eighties, basically where you get these little streaks of light that follow around and stuff like that. I think it's a similar thing, but there's something. I don't know. There's something. There's something almost mystical in that image to me. That I just maybe maybe it's why I invited you. Maybe whatever <laughs> that is that resonates with me about that is the same reason why I loved watching the oscilloscope for so long and felt like I could just kind of like steep in it. But yeah, there is. It's exactly what you're describing. The 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 watching the inter like the live interplay of actual materials. There's something beautiful about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just like. Just the, the the analog thing. It's I don't know. There's like this weird coldness that you always have to fight with digital art. Is like making it. I don't know. Like listening to electronic music. It's always very cold. And it, everyone says cold, but like, what do you mean by cold? And I struggle to, you know, uh, be articulate about that. But like these, as soon as you go analog, there's just like it feels more alive. There's this thing that is somehow less removed from life. Uh, it's not very articulate, but I, I think that's what you're saying with the old video cameras. Yeah, it's so hard to put your finger on, especially so hard to put your finger on without without falling into cliche because I feel yeah. like it's a conversation that happens a lot and, and it, can, it can start to feel sort of like nostalgia or like, uh, you know, kids these days type of, yes, exactly. type of thing. But, yeah, there is, I think there's something we're missing. And I also, I'm, I'm fairly certain, you know, when you talk about After Effects being able to kind of replicate to some extent this, um, this, this trail or this glow or this decay that happens on an oscilloscope, I think just like with, with CGI uh, in, in movies, I feel like there's always going to be a valley. There's always, that we're never going to be able to really make, you know, pass the pure emotional visceral Turing test of not being able to tell which one is analog and which one is digital. It's a, the, the valley exists, right? Yeah. And yeah, I think one thing people don't realize, like for the scope stuff, it's people have mostly seen it online. So they're familiar with like the captures I've made of it or other people have made of it. Uh, it is so different live. Like as soon as you're there in person, you're like, oh my gosh, I've been missing out on so much. Mm. And it's hard to explain to people because they're so people are so used to seeing really high quality images online. Like I don't know if you saw Dune, but like stunning visual the whole time. You're like, wow, this looks amazing. <laughs> I don't know if they did Dune in person or something. I just imagine 
dude like, on ice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, wow, this is so much better. It's it's the same thing with scope. As soon as you're in, there in person, you're just like, oh, here's all the bits that I'm missing that just you can't capture. Um, yeah, there's something. It's almost sculptural, or like the difference between seeing a painting and seeing a photograph of a painting. It's, yes, it's always going to feel different in some yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was that brings me to another question I had, which was like how. I've seen on your on your website and, and elsewhere online that people do are able to capture the image from its oscilloscopes. But yeah. is it just literally setting up a video camera in front of it, or is there a way to more uh, have a better fidelity capture of what's going on there? Yeah, so capturing the scope is a huge pain in the butt, <laughs> mm. uh, and I make it even harder on myself. But here, here's the brief technical <laughs> why why this is a pain in the butt. So when you capture the scope, obviously you want it to be dark in the room, uh, but the scope, you're literally basically just pointing the camera at the sun, right? It's just this beam of light. Um, so there's this just this huge problem where you have to turn it up so that you can see it. But if you turn it up too high, you're immediately sort of uh, blowing out all, <laughs> blowing out the camera. It's, everything just looks like this weird white. Right. So you have this like really tight range of brightness from the scope. And then the other issue is frame rate. So say I'm drawing something on the scope at 31 hertz, and your frame rate is 30 frames per second. Now you have this little gap in the image that just cycles around, you know, however the frame rate and the scope have happened to line up that time. Um, but you know, cameras don't have variable frame rates, as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> so you're stuck with whatever frame rate you choose. So ideally, you'd have twice the frame rate happening on the scope. So if I was at 30 FPS, I'd want 60 hertz. So I'd get two images per you know frame. But I don't do that. I sort of write the piece first and then try and film it later. Right. And there's all sorts of issues where you're just like, I, I will film it multiple times so that I get different, you know, sinking points and try and like layer them to cover up the spots where it's messed up because the frame rate isn't meshing with my image that's at 35 hertz and how there's like this weird flickering on the screen. Yeah, no, I mean, it happens to some extent whenever I, this is a familiar problem with just filming scenes and having a computer in the scene, for instance. Yes, yes. But it sounds like yours is more intense than that. <laughs> yeah, uh, mostly a pain of my own making. Uh, <laughs> so you can't, it's always got to be a camera. There's no way, like with a VCR or something, to record directly from the oscilloscope itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to you have to record it with a camera of some kind. Uh, the uh, the VCR analog, uh, analog, not as analog stuff, but analog would be the, the sound file that I've made. Mm -hmm. And that that's sort of like the exact replica. But then you'd need a viewing device, such as right. an oscilloscope. <laughs> Damn. So yeah, so it's hard. it would be hard to translate that imagery into like a music video or something like that and have yeah. it have it retain its warmth, have it retain the, the, yeah. the magic. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's in some ways part of it is that it's that there's something kind of amazing about the fact that it's literally only something you can really look at in the same room as one of these machines. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So I guess this next question, uh, one one thing we're always interested in is the sort of economics and material conditions of people working in the arts and in music. Okay. So I wonder if you can just kind of talk about how you're navigating that space. Are you doing freelance work? Do you have a full-time job? Do you pursue grants? Like what is the landscape like right now for someone working in your particular nexus of skills and interests? Well, in short answer, pretty poor. Uh, <laughs> long answer. Uh, so oscilloscope music is pretty cheap to make, all things considered. You, I use this program called Pure Data. Pure Data is free and will run on a Raspberry Pi. So you don't need some super fancy computer to do this, right? I'm running on a seven-year-old Mac. You could run on a computer from the 90s and Pure Data would run just fine. Uh, you need an audio interface. That's a couple hundred bucks. That's not too bad. Get an analog oscilloscope, another couple hundred. You can do the whole thing for, I don't know, as low as 400 bucks. Wow. Just as the initial investment. Just as the initial investment. You sort of already have to have a computer, but I'm assuming you already have one because in this day and age, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you yeah. sort of just need to have one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that itself is not that expensive, but as far as... I don't just do oscilloscope music. The oscilloscope music is when I get the chance. Mm. So as I work multiple part-time jobs, I have this job at a warehouse where I help with the shipping stuff. Um, very low-key, super chill. I have a job where I tutor. I tutor math. Mm. Yeah. And that's, that's mostly middle school kids. There's a couple high school kids. Um, I'm also a drumline instructor oh, wow. and do so much part-time work. And <laughs> so that adds up sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. Um, as far as grants go, I've never really applied for those, mostly because I graduated from school during the pandemic. Mm. And so it's like immediately into just a barren wasteland of nothing is happening. Yeah. Uh, so I've only just now, like within the last seven months, started really building connections in LA and uh, performing places. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought your performance was excellent. Um, I hope that you continue to have performances in LA. Is there a place where people can like follow along to find out when and where and what, what you've been up to? Yeah, so the Instagram is the, the main place. Uh, it's just my name, Eric Lanson. Um, it's like 90% oscilloscope stuff. Sometimes something personal makes it on there. Sometimes it'll be art that isn't oscilloscope, but it's mostly just here's some oscilloscope stuff I made. Also, there's a performance happening. Um, I have a website, which is just ericlanson.com. That's sort of more of a portfolio. Here's everything ever I've made. Um, yeah, those cool. are the two ways. Instagram is by far the best. Okay, great. Well, um, Eric, thanks so much. Yeah. This was great. I uh, really appreciate your time and your work, and I hope to see you out there again soon in the, in the fuzzy, bright green dots of the world. <laughs> thanks so much. <laughs> All right, take care.